Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Theater podcast. Uh, I'm Matt Freeman, your host. Today we'll be speaking with Peter Felicia and uh, discussing his book, Broadway Musicals, The Biggest Hit and the Biggest Flop of the Season, 1959 to 2009. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Theater podcast. I'm your host, Matt Freeman. And today we're here with Peter Felicia. Um, and uh, we're going to discuss a Broadway musical, the biggest hit and the biggest flop of the season, 1959 to 2009. Thanks for joining us. Hi, how are you? I'm very good. How are you doing today? Very well, thanks. Good. Um, so, obviously, you have a, uh, uh, this is a terrific book, and you, you have a huge uh, background in writing about the theater, and, and I'd love for you to tell the audience a little bit about um, uh, who you are and the sort of work you generally do. Well, it's almost been 50 years since I've seen my first Broadway show, which wow. happened on July 26, 1961, when um, I went to see My Fair Lady. By the way, not even knowing that it was a stage play, I thought I was going to see another movie. I didn't even know they did this anymore. I know that makes me sound quite backward, but the thing is, um, you have to understand these were the pre-internet days. And my my family never talked about the theater. I thought mm. once movies came in, they all went away. You know, nobody bothered anymore. Why would they bother? So um, I was quite surprised when uh, that curtain went up and there were real people there. So um, so as a result, I began a, a lifelong love affair with the Broadway musical. Um, so uh, I started collecting all the albums. I started doing all the research. Um, and while I didn't go to school for it, I will admit, uh, because <laughs> my parents insisted on my becoming a teacher rather than uh, a writer, the fact remained that uh, it was something I paid attention to morning, noon, afternoon, and night. And um, and so that's really what, what happened there. I did eventually go to school um, and get a, an MFA in playwriting. And, um, but falling into reviewing was an accident. It was a kid from uh, school who knew I liked um, theater said to me, I've just been made editor of a school paper. Why don't you write reviews for us? I had never given it a thought. So uh, for the last, mm, since 1968, I've been writing reviews uh, for most of that, that time, off and on, be it in my native Boston, uh, here in New York, and uh, mostly for the Star-Ledger newspaper in Newark, New Jersey, where I've been writing for the last 17 years. Wow, wow, wow. And uh, you also, what's your relationship to Masterworks Broadway? Is that Do you run that website? Do you write for that website? Or? No, I don't run it, but I do write for it. Yeah, every Tuesday uh, they ask me to do a column on original an original cast album or two. Um, for example, uh, next week, The Merry Widow, uh, a 1905 operetta is being released. And so I wrote about The Merry Widow, the, the pros and cons of The Merry Widow. Next week, yeah. uh, Damn Yankees, because uh, Damn Yankees is 56 years old now, which is interesting because, um, I don't know if you know, baseball, but <laughs> Joe DiMaggio had a 56-game hitting streak, and now um, Dan Yankees has a 56-year hitting streak of uh, being successful as a musical being produced here, there, and everywhere. Wow. Wow. So you clearly have an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, the subject. Well, I, yeah, it's, it's just that um, 
you know, when, when we, uh, Bill James, who, who um, is very well known for baseball abstract, once made the statement, uh, I think about baseball every minute. And um, I thought to myself, you know, I, that's almost true of me with musicals. Um, I'm always thinking of um, different ways to approach them, uh, different ways to uh, adapt them, uh, to fix them sometimes. Um, they just interest me. Rather than do crossword puzzles, I'd rather think about uh, how musicals can be better. Oh, that's terrific. Um, can I can I ask you a little bit about uh, about what inspired you to write about the biggest hit and the biggest flop? Well, the thing is, so many people um, know so much about the biggest hits, um, and so few people know about even moderate flops, let alone the biggest flops. And yet, um, people are seem to be attracted to both because um, even if it's from the vantage point of money, uh, let's face it, we're in America, everybody's interested in money, and one of the reasons the Spider-Man right now is, is getting so much interest is because everybody knows it's cost between $65 million and $70 million. So right. the thing is, people are always impressed to say, how much money does that hit make? How much money did that hit lose? And yeah. um, I was thinking of that one time, and I thought, you know, wouldn't it be fun to just look at each season of the last 50 years and see which was the biggest hit, which was the biggest flop. And then I thought, well, you know, I don't want to go over any territory, go on over a million times, but I want this book to be something um, involving facts and figures or um, slants that, that you haven't read in any other book. So, for example, for Phantom of the Opera, what am I going to do? Right, because it opened in, in October of 1986 in London, and it's, you know, that, everybody knows that. Or it, it, anybody who buys this book would know it. So what I did, I interviewed George Lee Andrews, who's been with Phantom here in New York since day one. Think about it. Okay. He said yeah. he's, wow. he's been with that with that uh, property since 1988. He hasn't always played the same part, but nevertheless, you know, eight performances a week, he's pretty much been, oh, he's taking vacations, he's taking a leave of absence. But by and large, he has done certainly more than 95 to 97, and I bet I'm low, percent of the performances. So what's it like to, to have that same job over and over? Do, uh, you know, some, some actors go crazy. You know, I mean, they, they really, I know an actor says, I can do it a year, but I'm telling <laughs> you after that year is up, I'm out of gas and, and I'm lousy, so I got to leave. You know, so um, how does he keep it fresh? So I thought that would be an interesting thing to look at um, because I had never read um, anything about George Lee and his long run with Phantom. So I thought that would be um, a good thing to do. For um, for the biggest flop, one year I took a show that closed before it was supposed to start rehearsal. It was they were supposed to start rehearsal on Monday, a show called Little World Hello. And, mm-hmm. um, and the money was pulled out at the last minute. And you can't read about Little World Hello anywhere else. Not that I know of, because, as I said, the paying t- I remember when it was supposed to happen. I remember it was supposed to come to Boston. I remember vividly it was supposed to open in Boston on April 28, 1966. I guarantee you that was the date. And, um, and it never happened. Well, why didn't it happen? You know, and so that interested me. So, uh, so if you can't even get into rehearsal, you know, you are, you are obviously the biggest flop of the season. Uh, so, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. yeah, shows have ran at least a little while, at least a few people saw them, you know, maybe somebody liked them, but no, not with something that closed in rehearsal. So that's yeah, what I was out to do, look for things I couldn't find anywhere else that I either knew from uh, just being around. Uh, Boston was a great place to grow up because in those days, not anymore, but in those days, shows used to come there to try out before they came to Broadway. So I saw a lot of things that uh, people didn't see. I remember when Cabaret was trying out in Boston, there was a scene in a park where Joel Gray was, um, the MC was pretending to be an amputee so that he could get a, a cup and get money, people feeling bad for him, while uh, a <laughs> prostitute ap- uh, approached Cliff uh, while he was with Sally Bowles and said, I will do anything for money. It, it was a scene it was only in for a few days, but I was there and I saw it and I could write about it. So uh, yeah, well, it, it does seem to say that you know it's funny because we tend to talk about uh, you know how at this point 
you know, you couldn't find anything on the Internet or what what have you. But I, I was completely unaware of a lot of the, this material. And I, I think experience, there's no replacement for experience. You, you're talking about how you saw this stuff or you remembered it personally. Yeah, to be, to be perfectly frank about this, I mean, if somebody today wanted to be an authority on the movies, um, he can pretty well do it uh, by seeing everything that he needs to. Um, everything that's available, right, there's some films that are lost, no question, the nitrate yeah, but you problem. Can go, you can go find a copy. Right, you know, and if you can't find a copy, nobody else has one either. So, I mean, you know, worse off than anybody else. But for a lot of this stuff with the theater, you had to be there. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's kind of amazing. And, and uh, I have to say, uh, reading it, what struck me, too, was that obviously reading about the flops is the most fun. I mean, the hits are really interesting. Sure. They, they read like, you know, I mean, it's really great to get that background information on, you know, what made them a hit and why they were popular in the moment. Well, yeah, sometimes now. it's really interesting how timing means everything. For example, um, in 1995, uh, the musical version of the movie Big was raring to go. They had their money. And they said, yeah. you know, we're not going to do it. I'll tell you why. Because Sunset Boulevard is going to open this year. And with Sunset Boulevard opening, that's going to be the big hit, and we can't win the Tony. You know what we're going to do? We're going to wait till next year. And that way next year we'll win the Tony because there will be no um, competition of any uh, big nature. Okay, well, fine. Well, Sunset Boulevard turned out to be a disappointment. In fact, it was the biggest flop of the season. Oh, it ran almost two years, but it lost between 20 and $30 million, depending on who's counting the money. Meanwhile, wow. Big decided to open the following year, but the following year a show that nobody saw coming occurred, and that was Rent. And suddenly uh -huh. Rent, the rock musical, made big, a, a conventional Broadway musical, and I don't mean that as a slur, I just mean a, a song and dance type show, looked terribly old-fashioned. So uh -huh. as a result, um, that became a dinosaur, where I guarantee you, had it opened against Sunset Boulevard, everybody would have said, oh, an American musical, how fresh, it's so nice to have something so simple and about childlike nature and all that, you know, as opposed to... Uh, oh, this tired old show, which it looked like um, next to Rent, the uh, the rock musical. So <laughs> they say timing is everything, yeah. you know, and uh, it certainly was in that case. Well, I, it does seem interesting that that um, you know the the taste change, so to speak, but that there is a relationship between, or it looked to me like there was, you know, people tend to talk about how you know quality and. It doesn't necessarily mean box office success. You know oh, by I mean? no means. No. But at um, the same time, some of these flops, you could sort of draw a line between the fact that they were a flop and maybe the quality wasn't so high. There's a, a litany of of just basic, uh, you know, dramaturgical mistakes. Well, on the other hand, as H.L. Makin said, nobody ever went broke underestimating the taste of the American public. And some hits, of course, <laughs> succeeded, you know, in spite of the fact that they weren't much good, but they certainly reached the common denominator. I was never much of a fan of uh, the show Smokey Joe's Cafe uh -huh. because it's a review. And that's I, I don't much like reviews because it's one song after another where all you can say is, gee, what a good song, or wow, what a terrific performer. I want to be emotionally involved. Yeah. I want to be emotionally involved. I want to really feel for the people on stage. I want to uh, identify with them. I want to be concerned whether or not they're going to overcome their difficulties. And a review doesn't allow that possibility. I mean, it's, it's just a case of, uh, gee, I didn't know that those people wrote that song. It's not a good song. Yeah, fine. You know, it's decent. I can sit through it. Yeah, I can do that. But it doesn't engage me in any way. So, um, but, you know, for people who like that type of thing, here it was. You know, and I never expected Smokey Joe's Have Fair to be nearly as successful as it was. 
was. But another thing was the fact that it got a big boost from that annual infomercial known as the Tony Awards because the Tonys are very good at promoting shows. There's no question that one can see the day after the awards that um, the box office improves for the shows that came across well on the Tonys. In fact, sure. Tonys on the website you will see um, after the awards. Look for it this year. They don't keep it up all year, but they have a little um, graph where they say, why do you watch the Tony Awards? And uh, to see who won, uh, to see what they wore, uh, to see the numbers, and to see the numbers wipes the floor with who won the awards. People really turn in to see what the shows are like, which leads us to think that there really should be more of a show every year, uh, more than once a year on Broadway, um, broadcast to the nation. Well, here's what's going on right now. This is what shows look like. That's what really strikes me about that uh, that fact is that it seems to me that people just don't know. They, this is their yeah. one time of the year where if you don't live in New York City or a major metropolitan area, this is where you get keyed in, what's going on on Broadway. It used to be so much easier. Um, it, the world all changed dramatically in 1970-71 because two things happened. One, Life Magazine uh, essentially went out of business. Oh, they've published a little, but they were publishing every week. And Life Magazine used to be very good to the Broadway musical. Broadway musicals often made the cover, or if they didn't, there were certainly big tutorial spreads inside each and every week to let you know what the newest hit was. So people who weren't in New York still knew that there was such a thing as a Broadway musical, and if they got here, this is what they should see. The other thing was the Ed Sullivan Show, which used to be on Sunday nights at 8 o'clock, and Ed Sullivan used to often bring on a Broadway show to do a number from the show uh, each and every week, and that was tremendous free advertising, too. So uh, when those two things went away, Broadway had a much tougher time of it because it was very hard for the rest of the country to know what it was. Yeah, that's I, I've never heard that, and that, that makes a lot of sense. Also, because now uh, the media landscape is, even if Life magazine was still there, it's much more fractured. It sure is, and it's going to continue to be. Um, luckily now, the Internet has helped. And at the moment, you know, Broadway is reasonably healthy. Uh, all of us may not approve of uh, some of the shows that are on, and we all have some favorites, and we the shows that we don't like. But nevertheless, it's amazing how much um, people are going to the theater on Broadway, considering the economy has had some tough times. But Broadway hasn't particularly suffered. It's, it's really interesting. Frankly, I worry more about movie theaters than I worry about legitimate theaters, because, of course, we now have these enormous screens in our own home, and we can get... Yeah. Netflix, we can um, dial up whatever we need. While, you know, if you really want the theater experience, you've got to leave the house. You There's know really, I mean? really you know, no other option for yeah, so Yeah, I mean, movie theaters are adding the 3D options and sure. everything, just to, and they're bulking up, uh, you know, they're getting more money per ticket. Yeah, way, well, really. Broadway is too. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, mean I bet you that I was. I went forty, uh, fifty years ago to see uh, My Fair Lady. Um, my ticket was four dollars and forty cents for Wednesday afternoon, and that was one of the best seats in the house. So um, it isn't four forty anymore. No, not no. so much. <laughs> no, no, it um, isn't. One thing I have to say, reading through the, you know, the great thing about this book. I mean, there's a bunch of great things about this book, but one thing I really enjoyed about it was that, you know, I would find myself sort of cracking it open at any page. And just sort of like reading about that little that flop or that that factoid, you know, you don't have to sort of sit down and read through it like a textbook. It's really fun to just crack open and say, oh, check that out. Yeah, um, it, I, I, dip in any way you want, and uh, I hope that something will uh, capture your fancy. But there's no question one doesn't have to start on page one and, and go all the way through. So uh, I was fascinated to find that 
Edward Albee had actually written a draft of the Breakfast at Tiffany's musical. Yeah, that was really a, a, a last-ditch effort from producer David Merrick, um, who was the very famous producer of his time. And um, he had this musical at Breakfast at Tiffany's that was supposed to be the biggest hit of the season. I mean, there was no question that year that that was going to be the big hit. Um, oh, it had competition because, after all, there was uh, a new musical by the guys who wrote Fiddler on the Roof that was coming, and another musical by the guys who wrote The Fantastics with Mary Martin and Robert Preston, two of the biggest musical stars of all time. But but nevertheless, Breakfast at Tiffany's, which was then called Holly Go Lightly, named after the main character, was definitely going to be the biggest hit. Mary Tyler Moore was going to be in it. Richard Chamberlain was the leading man. The guy who had um, written the score had just finished writing the lyrics of Funny Girl. The guy who was directing had directed How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying and, and had written it, too, and he was writing this, uh, the script as well. I mean, how could it fail? And I'm t- uh-huh. I saw it, by the way. I saw it in Boston. Oh, did you? And, yeah. And at oh, that the, point... The, the Albee version? No. He came oh, okay. in later. Uh, but I have read the Albee version um, since then. Uh, uh, where he essentially um, has um, Jefferson, as the character's name is. That's not a, uh, his name in the um, famous movie, the George Papard character. Sure. He's writing about um, this girl, and and it, there's, it, it doesn't work at all. I mean, it's it's done as a type of flashback, and it, it's not particularly musical. But the thing is, um, David Merrick was so discouraged at how things were going, he just wanted to take a wild chance and see what would happen. He had right. enough money to do that, you know, yeah. and, that, and that was great. Now, the irony of Breakfast to Tiffany's is it came to New York with a tremendous advance sale. It could have run for at least six months without having to sell a single ticket. But Merrick said the show was so bad that he felt terrible for people who had bought tickets. He said, you know, I, I just can't do this to people. I can't make them see a show this bad. Um, it, it's just something I cannot do. So wow. what he did was pull the plug on the show and gave everybody the money back, which is highly unlikely for David Merrick to do, but he did it. Ironically, enough, I'll never forget being at a party one night. We were all squeezed in. You know, it's one of those things you can't even move. And I squeeze and I turn around. And squeezing and turning around also is Mary Tyler Moore. And we are face to face. And I said, I saw Holly go lightly. And she said, icily, did you? You know, I mean, <laughs> she didn't want to talk about it at all. You know, wow. Chamberlain's a little better about it. He's interested in talking about the fact that people were yelling back to him on the stage. This is terrible. You know, and he'll tell you about it. But, but she'd rather forget about uh, that uh, part of her history. One thing I thought was really funny about what he wrote was that he was told by other stage performers that now he had made it because he'd been in a flop. Yeah, you know, there's no question that um, it is part of the fraternity. It's something that you have to go through. Um, Oscar Hammerstein, who was Stephen Sondheim's mentor, uh, mm-hmm. always said that uh, to him. He says, you will not be part of this business until you are part of a flop. Because his first three show were hits. He did West Side Story. He did Gypsy. He did A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Nothing could go wrong for him. And then he had a show that lasted one week on Broadway. And even though Oscar Hammerstein had died, he certainly remembered his mentor's words saying, when you have a flop, then you're really part of it because you have to suffer too. You have to know what that's like. You can't think that you always have the answers. You cannot believe that you will always be able to solve every problem. No one can. We're all human beings and we all fail. The trick yeah. of it is to have more hits than flops, which is yeah. hard to do. But nobody, well, really, look at sports. I mean, how many teams go undefeated? You know, I mean, right. the 1972 Dolphins, the <laughs> you know, I mean, even a few years ago when the Patriots won all their games, uh, then the Giants came in the Super Bowl and beat them. It's very hard to win all your games. It can't yeah. be done. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I, I, I definitely um, uh, found it intriguing that uh, the reviews are only a small part of what makes you win the game, so to speak. Well, um, the other thing about reviews. You highlight Les Mis here, uh-huh. mm-hmm. getting these dreadful reviews. Terrible. 
Ter- in right. London, yeah. And it was interesting when we came to New York, all of a sudden the reviews were good because it had been running two years in London and everybody liked it. Nobody dared to say it. It was terrible. Um, and I, I, by the way, I love Wayne Minson. I think it's a very good show. And uh, it, I think it's one of the best scores ever written for the history of musical theater. But yes, it wasn't appreciated when it first came out in London. And yet the public just would not let it die. And sometimes that happens. And shows are becoming more and more critic-proof. And that probably has something to do with the fact that sometimes critics write for themselves. That they write and say, oh, I don't like it. But that's less to do with what you like. What, what critics should do is serve the reader. It's should you like it. Um, yeah. you know, I, I remember early on a show was trying out in New Jersey, and I, I didn't care for it all that much, but I gave it a rave review because I knew it would do well with a certain part of the public. I like to be an audience matchmaker, see a show and say, okay, I don't like it, but who will? And so I thought that single people and young people would like this show, and I gave it a good review, and it started it on its way. It was called I Love You, Perfect Now Change. It ran 12 years yeah, in that, New York. No, it closed, but it ran 12 oh, years, okay. and that's pretty good. And that the is thing good. is, you know, and the thing is, um, uh, if I had just used my own taste as a barometer, I would have given it a negative review because it didn't appeal to me. But I had something in common with it. You know, I mean, I, it was about dating and young people. And I, I, well, you know, I'm not dating. I'm not young. You know, so as a result, it doesn't appeal to me. But why not let people know who would like it that it would appeal to them? And that's what that, I did. That takes a special kind of uh, sort of um, foresight to be able to kind of put yourself in the mind of let you said you're you're not young, you're not dating, but you know to to figure it out to have enough experience to say I know who will like this. Yeah, I wish more people would do that, frankly, because and and they would serve the reader more. It's not just about whether a show's good, bad, or indifferent. It has to do with the fact that it will appeal. I've seen so many nice shows over the years that would have pleased so many people um, closed because critics have not um, gone to bat for them. And what I've also seen, which has been very interesting, is shows in previews where the audiences love it dearly, and then the reviews come out and say it stinks, and then the public goes, and they do not enjoy it because the critics have not given them permission to. Because, you know, now that they say, oh, I'm, I'm not going to let people know I'm an idiot by laughing at this or responding to this. The critics have said it's no good. Therefore, it must what, be no can good. You, can you give me a, a current example? I cannot give you a current example. I will tell you this happened with a play, actually, called La Bette. that was produced in 1991. I went to There's that David, show. David Herson, right? Good for you. Yes, indeed. I saw it twice in previews, and I saw the audience go crazy for it. And then the night after the reviews came, I saw that play die in front of the audience. Why? It was the same performance. They were using the same energy. Everything was exactly the same, except the audience was told not to laugh by the wow. critics. And so, well, and, and comedy is such a such an agreement between the audience and the performers. Yeah, see, that's that it. If the audience shows up with their arms folded, you're in deep trouble right off the start. Where on the other hand, if you tell the audience it's going to have a good time, it goes there in a better frame of mind. They feed the actors. They get the anticipation that something nice is going to happen. The actors give it back to them, and everybody has a love fest. You know, yeah. and really, isn't it's all about entertaining people and make people have a good time. I mean, uh, so many critics too often say, you know, oh, it's nothing new. Yeah, not to us. We go to the theater all the time. To the people right. who haven't been, it is new. And we have to remember that, that uh, it is due to uh, people who, who you, you know, the League of American Theaters claims that a heavy theater goer, a heavy theater goer, one who goes a lot, goes uh-huh. four times a year. Wow. You know, oh, my God. I, yeah. You know, well, tickets are so expensive. You know, I mean, you want to take the family, you know, you, you, and you want to eat and you want to park and all that kind of stuff. You know, you're talking $750 to $1,000 for a night. You know, yeah. and that's a lot. Yeah, it's crazy. It's yeah. a lot. It, it is. You know, so as a result, you know, under those circumstances, it's not surprising that people only go four times a year if they go that much. But the Absolutely. point is, if they go four times a year, they're going to be dazzled by things that don't dazzle us who go all the time. I mean, I go almost every day. Seriously. Yeah. Seriously. I also think that um, that's amazing. I also think that that some, somehow that 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 ticket price 
makes the audience more they they desire a good time. You know, I've heard a lot of stories about people going to Mamma Mia and the audience gets up and dances and they clap and they do all this stuff. And I feel like almost because they've made this agreement with themselves, listen, we spent a lot of money on this. We know we're going to have fun, so let's have fun. Let's get into it. That's definitely a factor. There's no question about that. And on the other hand, I've certainly heard people um, say that when they're sitting in the theater, before that curtains go up, they say, all right, this better be good. I spent all this money for this. This better be good now. And, you know, they're angry already and it hasn't started, and that's not the frame of mind they should be in. But, uh, but of course, considering the money they put out, I don't blame them for feeling that way. Sure. What I'm saying is that just I, – I remember when ticket prices reached $17.50, and I said, whoa, this is getting out of hand now, and I still <laughs> believe it. Yeah, well, $300 to go and take your wife or whatever, or it's mm-hmm. just like that's out of control. It sure but is. People, people do pay it. They do. Somehow they find the money. I guess the need to be in a room with other people and see live people means that much to people. It astonishes yeah. me, but I mean, uh, 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 this current show, The Book of Mormon, it's very hard to get a ticket to. There's, there's almost always some show that's impossible to get a ticket to, which yeah, sure. means that people are going to pay even more, you know, a scalper's prices and what have you. I mean, it, it's so, you know, so people just have a thirst for this. Um, it, <laughs> it may not be something that around the nation that some people uh, even know about, but there's enough people out there to fill a lot of seats each and every week. One thing I thought was interesting, uh, getting back to the book a little bit, I was reading through, uh, you know, the things that you said were uh, sort of like, from the start, you can tell this is going to be a mess. And I was reading about Via Galactica. Yeah, Via Galactica. Which is, is sort of amazing sounding. One of those one of those things when you read it, you go, I sort of wish they'd do it again so I could watch. Oh, I'd love to see Via Galactica. Yeah, I wasn't in town that week, so I didn't see Via Galactica, <laughs> which, uh, which played all of a week. Um, at, uh, it opened uh, uh, the theater that's now where Wicked is, in fact. And for years, that theater was considered to be a disaster because it was too big and nothing could fill it. Wicked has had no problem filling it for the last right. uh, many years. So uh, Via Galactica was a science fiction musical uh, with music by the guy who wrote Hair. And um, and the famous thing about that was there were a lot of people who were supposed to be uh, in outer space with uh, with gravity not being something to pull them down. So what they right. did, they used trampolines, and uh, people were bouncing all over the place. And one critic said, well, you know, I know it's supposed to be that they're floating around in gravity, but frankly what it looks like is people on trampolines. You know, you just can't get away from it. Uh, yeah, that, uh, yeah. You better leave and, that and, up to the and, movies. And, that's, and, the, and the director was or the person who suggested at least the trampolines was Peter Hall? Peter Hall, a great... Sir Peter Hall. Sir Peter Hall, yes, a little more respect. Uh, there's no question that he was one who <laughs> has uh, a great pedigree and is one of the most respected men in the history of the American theater. And yes, and yes, you know, we can't always come up with a winner. And again, he wasn't famous for doing musicals. And the musical is a completely different animal. So yeah. many people have tried to do musicals and have failed. And conversely, Jerome Robbins was considered the guru of staging musicals. And Gower Champion, not far behind, occasionally would try a straight play with no music, and they would bomb incredibly. Um, Champion had one that closed uh, right away called Three Bags Full. And Jerome Robbins had one called The Office, which they closed it before the critics could get to it. They said, no, 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 we can't have critics review this. It's too embarrassing. We will close before we open. So, uh, you know, it, so it's a very different skill. You either got it or you don't, you know. And yeah. um, some people have musicals in their bones, as Arthur Lawrence said, and some don't. And Peter Hall apparently didn't. Um, one thing I think is interesting is that if you decide that you want to put vampires in your musical, just, st- just stop right away. 
Yeah, the Vampire thing, which of course has been very successful in so many other franchises, hasn't had any luck. But um, there have been so many failures with vampire musicals, um, certainly with Dance of the Vampires and certainly with the Dracula musical some years ago, and then Lestat, which Elton John tried. And I do believe, however, that there's no such thing particularly as a bad idea as much as there's bad execution. I bet if Stephen Sondheim decided in his prime, by the way, that he was going to write a musical about vampires, I bet it would have turned out very, very good. So the (laughs) thing is, you know, some things are harder than others. There's no question about that. But um, by and large, um, it's the approach that really does the show in rather than the idea itself. Oh, that's interesting. And and so you don't think there's some something some things the audience just just don't want to see. Well, uh, it, there's an argument to be made for that. Uh, the, the longer I live, the more I realize that uh, there are exceptions to every rule. And you know, well, sure, really, you know, you know uh, but um, and we, and we're never supposed to say never. But there are some ideas that uh, do seem to uh, be better than others. And I wouldn't want to uh, be the person starting a vampire musical now because he has three strikes against him, literally, with those three shows. Right, the critics are walking in with the arms folded. I'm afraid that's. <laughs> I'm afraid that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, and and one thing you mentioned to uh, Stephen Sondheim before, you you uh, in the book um, have make a statement, uh, go out of your way to make a statement about how you know Sondheim's representation in these uh, biggest hits, biggest flops. Uh, book and what you feel about the fact that he's uh, maybe underrepresented. Well, there's no question that he never had a biggest hit of the season. Um, And uh, he certainly had the Tony Awards, but in terms of box office appeal, and he'll be the first to admit this, he's gone on record as saying, I'm just not that popular, because he does go for a very high standard, and he loses a good deal of the audience who, who doesn't quite get what he's getting at. So um, he is the caviar of musical theater, and as a result, uh, some people, you, you saw the movie Big, uh, there was uh, Josh there at the party, you know, eating caviar and spitting it out, you know, he couldn't take it. And right. um, you know, so, so while Sondheim is, is the critics' favorite, he hasn't been an audience favorite uh, very much. Um, it, it, his longest running show was Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which is a very atypical Sondheim show because it's a comedy. Um, it's not a, a dark show as so many of his shows have been. I mean, he, he did one, uh, Sweeney Todd, which is about a mass murderer, and he did Assassins about murderers, and you know, and, and those aren't going to be popular with all the public. They're astonishingly interesting shows, and they're very well done, and every word is in place, but nevertheless, um, it, it's it's too distancing for many people who who want to go to a musical and seeing singing and dancing. Sure, but you know, doesn't that? Uh, I, I, it's so odd that it, that audiences who are going to spend a lot of money and spend a lot of time, um, you know, in the presence of these things, you know, here's the here's arguably the the greatest creator in the medium. And he's just, you know, he has trouble connecting. Yes, and ironically enough, connecting is a big thing with him. Uh, he's, he's written a lot about connecting in one form or another, so it's interesting you should choose that word. But um, the thing is that uh, that's the case right now. Who knows? Maybe in 50 years he'll be appreciated. We certainly know a lot of artists who took a while to be appreciated, so maybe he will be the thing in uh, 30, 40, 50 years. And um, I won't be around to see it, but I hope it happens. <laughs> I hope it happens. Um, I hope so too. And, and what do you, so? And you also wrote a little bit about um, how you feel like the the pop song or the rock song has sort of uh, you know we're going through a phase where the pop song or the rock song 
has sort of replaced the traditional Broadway musical form. Well, how could it not? I mean, Rook has been in existence now since 1955, you know, give or take a year, and it's what many people are used to hearing. So a lot of people, indeed, um, want to hear rock music at, at every time in their life. On the other hand, there always seems to be uh, the type of theater goer who expects to come to Broadway and see soft shoe and uh, straw hats and what have you and canes. They just do, and it's, that's why revivals uh, do well. I'm not saying revivals do as well routinely, as new shows, but revivals do have an audience, and this year alone, here's Anything Goes, a show from 1934, all right, with a few rewrites, but it's a 1934 show uh, at sure. heart, and uh, How to Succeed Business Without Really Trying, which is 50 years old now. You know, here they are, and they're drawing audiences, and they're conventional shows with old-fashioned show tunes, and there's an audience for that, too. Some people want to come to Broadway and see exactly that and don't want to see a rock musical, while, of course, other audiences want to see a rock musical and want no part of these old-fashioned shows. Something for everyone. It's all a big festival. Good luck to everybody. <laughs> That's great. Well, um, uh, where can uh, people find uh, Broadway musicals? On Amazon, of course. I'd say in fine bookstores <laughs> everywhere, but uh, where are the fine bookstores anymore? Uh, it's very hard to find a brick and mortar store uh, in anybody's neighborhood anymore. It's unfortunate, and, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, um, certainly in Amazon. the bookshop in New York. Well, yes, God bless the drama bookshop, which got a Tony Award, uh, or will be getting a Tony Award uh, for, for its achievements for being around for all these wonderful years. God bless the drama bookshop. Uh, they're very good uh, to have around, and uh, we're very grateful that they exist. But uh, for those people who aren't around, uh, yes, indeed. Amazon will do it. So, um, Terrific. Terrific. thank you. Thank you. Well, it's nice my, my pleasure. Thank you so much for speaking to us. I, I really can't recommend this book highly enough. Um, it's uh, it's a super fun to read, really informative, beautifully written. Uh, just loved it. So thanks so much, and uh, I hope to talk to you again soon. Good. Until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the New Books in Theater podcast. Check out all the great podcasts at newbooksnetwork.com.